every day. Every day. Every day. I will spend time with God. I will pray. I will pray. 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 I will pray. I will be holy. I will be holy. 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 I will be holy. I will be holy. I will fulfill God's purpose for me and my generation. My generation. My generation. I will fulfill God's purpose. God's purpose for my generation. For me and my generation. My generation. I will live the vow. Alright, if you have your Bible, open up to John. Actually, open up Ephesians 5, Ephesians 5, put your finger in there, and then turn to John 15, okay? Ephesians 5, get it, hold it, and flip over, keep your finger in it, and go to John 15, okay? You there? Made you do two things at once, I know it's difficult, you can do it, I believe in you. Alright, John 15, John 15 says this, uh, in verse 13, it says, Greater love has no one than this. That he lay down his life for a friend. Greater love has no one than this. That he lay down his life for a friend. Flip over to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, 15 through 16. Be very careful then how you live. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the most of every opportunity. Because the days are evil. Father, we come before you today. God, we welcome you into this place. Jesus, we ask that you will come and that you will move in our hearts, that you will speak to us. We give you this time. Challenge us, God. We want to go deeper in you. In Jesus' name, everybody said? Amen. Amen. All right, well, this is the the fellas. This is the guys' session here, all right? It's just us, just men. And uh, isn't that right? Let's hear it for that. You know, it, it smells natural in here, and I'm glad for that. So, uh... I want to talk to us today, you know, I read that verse, it says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. You know, sometimes guys, uh, well, I won't put this on you, but I know it's true. Uh, but sometimes uh, I'll say myself, you know, we, we, we're known for kind of doing dumb things, yes or no. Guys do dumb things, right? Yeah, and, and we cheer about it. We do dumb, I mean, for instance, for instance, here's the thing. Uh, like when I was growing up, we'll start, my brother and I, uh, one time, we, we lived in Oklahoma, and Oklahoma is, has crazy thunderstorms. I mean, insane thunderstorms, right? And so I remember I was a kid, and I was at home, massive thunderstorm outside, and uh, I was watching uh, the Seattle Supersonics play the Denver Nuggets in the playoffs. At that time, I was a Sonics fan. I was pre-mellow. And, uh, and so anyway, so I was there watching the game, and I was intense, thunderstorm behind me, you know, and this really intense moment. And my brother's like, hey, Dan, uh, hey, I got an idea. Let's go ride our bikes in the rain. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So let's do it. So we got out and we got our bikes and we were riding around and went up to like the school and there was huge puddles and we'd see how, you know, how far we could ride. Have you ever tried to ride a bike through a puddle? Like a massive puddle. And like, eventually you can't do it and you just tip over, you know, so we were doing all this. Then we go and we ride behind our house, and behind our house is a, is a little uh, creek. You know, in Oklahoma, it's a creek. And, uh, and it's just, you know, it's just, I mean, I would jump over it every day on my way to school. Um, and so we ride back there, and, and the little creek has all of a sudden become a roaring river. I mean, it has rapids. It's, it's literally like 10 feet uh, across, and we, don't have, we have no idea how deep it is. The current is crazy. And so we're, we're there, and... Uh, and like good brothers are, we're standing there, and David looks at me and he's like, I dare you to ride through it. <laughs> so me, being the courageous young man that I was, you first. 
Oh, he had to, right? He's the older one. So he was like, okay, if I, I got to do this. So there he goes, gears up on his bike, takes off down the hill, full steam ahead, going straight towards this river. Used to be a creek. Now it's a river. Gets about one tire in and the river takes the bike out of underneath him. Just gone. He's there. I don't even see him anymore. I'm running up. I'm like, I'm looking for him. I'm like, Dave! Dave! And you know, I see a hand here and then my head, you know, and he's like, he's going down and it's crazy. And then, okay, uh, I, I don't know how many, if they have this here or where you're at, but our, this creek, which is now the, the Nile River, um, it all of a sudden, it goes under the street and so it becomes all cement. Um, you know what I'm talking about? And so like, it's going down and then it just, I, I look and I, I'm seeing my brother float down the river and I'm seeing cement and I'm like, once he reaches that point, he can't do anything. I mean, gone. He's, you know, like, he, there's nothing to grab onto. He can't get himself out. Of, he's going under the street. And I've played in this little area. You know, we're guys, right? We do dumb things. You crawl through tunnels. You do weird things. I've, I've been here. I don't know where that tunnel leads. I've never seen the end of it. And I'm watching as, he floating, as he's floating down. And I'm like, I'm about to be the heir to my father's fortune because my, which was like five bucks, you know? And, you know, and I'm like, because Dave is gone. And just like, I'm not even joking. I wish I was exaggerating this point. I am not. Like one foot before he enters this cement tunnel of death, he reaches up and grabs this dead patch of grass and somehow pulls himself out. And I mean, you know, I'm like, I'm about, I'm, I was like 10. I'm about to jump in this roaring rapid river to try to save him, which would only have killed us both. You know, I wasn't going to do anything good. He pulls himself out. We do dumb things, right? How many ever done anything dumb like that? Almost died. Here's another thing. I don't know how many of you guys, I, my friends and I growing up, we had this weird obsession with getting on the roof. Anybody ever been on a roof of a building? I don't know why, if for some reason you feel like you've dominated the building or something, but we went on the roof of every building we could. And, uh, and sometimes it was dumb. For instance, one time, it was in the middle of winter. We're sitting at my house and, hey, what should we do? I don't know. Let's go on the roof. You know, that's what you do. So we go out and, uh, and so we're climbing up the roof. I, I crawl out the window and I walk and I take the right hand turn because I had, you know, to get up to the top because you can't just be on. The, you got to go to the top, you know. And so uh, I look back and I'm like, hey, everybody, there's a big patch of ice right there. Don't don't touch it. So then my friend who's right behind me turns the corner slips boom on the cement i look down you know the gutter is bent i look at my other friend i'm like john ice don't step on it he looks at me this right here bam on top of my other friend we do dumb things right I don't know why we do these things. It's that we're at my other friend's house. We're bored. We say, let's go on the roof. Okay, so we're out on the roof and we're running around. His sister comes out. We can't see her. We just yell at her. She's like, if you guys are on the roof, I'm going to tell the parents. You know, so we're like, oh, get off, get off. So we run and go, you know, matrix style, jump off. Again, same friend that did the dumb, this fall. The last one to jump off, jumps, foot caught in the gutter. Bam, down on his face. I don't know why we're dumb. We do dumb things, yeah? I don't know why. I mean, I'll tell you, I don't know if you relate with this. I've gone off-roading in an Oldsmobile. What is that? You know? You know, I mean, we're just, this, is, this is what we do, right? I don't know why, but it's what we do. And I think that, it, I, I think that sometimes we, we, 
say that and people look at us and we're like, oh, you're just, you're just dumb guys. You're guys being dumb. But I don't know if that's the case. I don't really think that it's just guys being dumb. Here's the thing, friends. I kind of think you were made to be like that. You were made to be adventurous. Now, I'm not saying you were made to jump off buildings and land on your face. But you were made to want to be doing something. You're a guy. That's what you want to do. You want to get out and do something. As I, as I work with, with young people, with, uh, you know, with youth groups and prayer meetings and, and Bible studies at school, I, I, I've noticed this uh, disheartening trend in years recently. For some of you youth pastors, you might understand this. I go to a prayer meeting at a school... And there's like one dude for every seven chicks there. You know, it's like the, the guy to girl ratio in so many things. It's like the, the girls are, are running the ship here. You know, they're like, they're the ones that are, do, they're beating us at the, being at the prayer meeting, leading the Bible study. They're doing the stuff. I don't think that that should be. I think we can do something about that. I think that the guys, we need to be the ones out leading. We need to be the ones that are going out and leading in this adventuresome spirit that we have, right? But here's the thing. I think that sometimes we don't equate church or God with adventure. We don't see God and think that is exciting. We have this weird mentality. As men, we have an off... I mean, listen, you guys have heard from the last night on, you have heard us talk time and time again about who Jesus is and, and how so often we have a wrong mentality of who Jesus is. I mean, I don't know what your Jesus is. You know, Dave, Dave talked about the cup Jesus. Brent talked about the flannel board, Jesus. What is your Jesus? Maybe, maybe it's Talladega Nights. Maybe you, you know, sweet baby Jesus. You know, I don't know. Maybe sweet baby Jesus is your Jesus. Maybe it's, you know, maybe you like your Jesus in a tuxedo t-shirt, you know? Says, I'm serious, but I'm here to party. You know, I don't know how you like your Jesus. I don't know what you, how you see your Jesus. Maybe, maybe Jesus is your homeboy. You know, I don't know. Maybe you got the t-shirt and Jesus, my homeboy. I don't know, but, but we've kind of taken this great, I mean, David talked about Jesus is awesome, and we've taken this idea of who Jesus is, and we've dumbed it down so much that Jesus is trendy. Friends, Jesus is not trendy. He's the king of the ages. This is a man to, I mean, the Bible talks so much about the fear of the Lord. You don't fear your homeboy. I mean, let me, I just want to share this with you. Uh, this is all guys in here. And so I want to talk to you a little bit about Jesus, what the Bible says about Jesus, right? I love in, uh, in Matthew 10, verse 34, what does Jesus say? In Matthew 10, 34, he says, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Yeah. That's not the Jesus that a lot of us know. A lot of us think Jesus, you know, is, is the guy that's there and he's just nice and sweet and he's here and he wants everybody to get along, right? I hear that all the time. Uh, you know, like the world views Christians and whenever Christians cause any kind of tension by trying to tell people the difference between right and wrong, they say, you're Christians, you're supposed to just love everybody and just be sweet and get along with everybody. Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. Let's go to Psalms. Look in Psalms 37. I was having a conversation with my buddy the other day, Austin, and uh, he said these things and I really liked them. And so I want to repeat some of them to you. Psalm 30 or sorry, Psalm three. Look at verse seven. Verse 7, I will, or sorry, arise, O Lord. I love that. Arise, O Lord. Deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. I like to call that the UFC Jesus. That's the UFC Jesus right there. I mean, that's the, the Chuck Liddell or whatever. You know, that's the, I'm going to break your teeth, Jesus. Chuck, Chuck Norris could be that too. You know, what about, let's go to, oh wow, get a rise for Chuck Norris. Everybody loves Chuck Norris. Psalm 107. Psalm 107. Verse 16. 
This is the SWAT team, Jesus. Psalm 107, verse 16 says this. For he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts, iron through the, or, and cuts through the bars of iron. Oh, let me go back. Let him give thanks to the Lord for his unfailing love and his wonderful deeds for men. For he breaks down the gates of bronze and cuts through the bronze of iron. He comes through and he busts through the bronze. He cuts down the iron. This is a SWAT team coming in, special weapons and tactics. He, he knows what he's doing. He's a pretty, pretty sweet guy there. Psalm 35, Psalm 35. Psalm 35, we're going to start in verse 1. Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take up the shield and buckler. Arise and come to my aid. Brandish the spear and javelin against those who pursue me. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. That's the 300 Jesus, you know. That's the, that's, I mean, he's coming in to save you. Like he's, I mean, that's, he's pretty, that's pretty sweet. Like this isn't, this isn't just a sweet, nice little picture of Jesus. Let's go to Revelation. What does Revelation have to say? Revelation 1.14, Revelation 1.14. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of a rushing water. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And out of his mouth came sharp, double-edged swords. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. I mean, he's holding stars, swords coming out of his mouth. This, Austin, you know, Austin likes to call this the Mortal Kombat Jesus. You know, like, he's like, ooh-ha, you know, and like swords coming out of his mouth. I mean, I mean, he's coming to rule and reign. David talked about this one last night. Uh, uh, let's go Revelation 19. Revelation 19, verse 12. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his heads are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but himself. He is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the word of God. He has a robe dipped in blood. Let me tell you what that means there. That, 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 I like to call this the brave heart Jesus. If you look in Isaiah, he talks about the robe dipped in blood. And, and, and the same idea here, same picture. It's for revenge. It's for vengeance. Here's what happened. That robe dipped in blood, that's the blood of the martyrs. And so Jesus is coming saying, you've killed my bride. I'm coming to get you. You know, you've killed the ones I love. I'm coming to get you. That's the, that's the Mel Gibson, brave heart Jesus. You killed my wife. Here I come. Listen, I don't know if you see this or not, but this is not like kind, sweet. I mean, this guy is coming to take over. You know, if you look, uh, go, to, go to John. Go to John chapter 2, verse 13. John 2, we all know this story. John 2, verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all of them out of the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and money changers and overturned their tables. Okay, here's what he did. He comes there. Oh, I'm going to keep reading. I like it. I'm going to keep reading. To those who sold doves, he said, get, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? And his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. This is kind of the Indiana Jones meets Incredible Hulk Jesus. You know, I mean, here he is. He's looking at them. I, I don't know if you see this in, this in this moment, but he goes in, he sees the temple. And what does he do? He makes a whip. Not he grabs a whip. He, make, he sits down. He's looking at them, watching them, saying, I'm putting a whip together here. His zeal is burning within me. I, I braid this whip. And then he stands up. You know, I mean, how long does it take to make a whip? I've never made a whip. Jesus made a whip. 
And then, all of a sudden, Hulk-like, he gets up and starts throwing tables around. One of my favorite verses, this verse, is what, what really captured me when I was in, about, in high school. It's Matthew eleven twelve. For the kingdom of God suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. You can look at other versions. For the kingdom of God is forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. The idea here is, is that Jesus is saying, from John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and people are forcefully coming towards it. They can't stop it. They're, they're coming out violently. They're trying to grab hold of what we're doing. The kingdom of heaven is advancing and people are running violently towards it. I love that idea. Listen, friends, if you think that being a Christian is all about being cute and nice, that's not it. Being a Christian is all about serving the God of the ages who will one day rule and reign. The God who has created the heavens and the earth. You know, the Bible says he's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. The Lord of Lords, the King of Kings, says he's the chief among 10,000. That means you get 10,000 kings together and he's the best king. We serve the God. We serve an incredible God. He is I, to say that there are not words is wrong. There are words, there just aren't enough. We must use every word we can, though, to describe him because he is that amazing. I, want my, I hope that there's within you, when I said this about Matthew eleven twelve, 12, that was the verse that really grabbed hold of me when I was young. And that was what I said. I, I, I kind of got this mission, this desire where I was like, man, if there's anything I want to do, I want to, in my life, I want to forcefully advance the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, when I'm talking about this, when I'm reading these verses, I'm, this is not about, about advancing it, not like going to school and breaking people's teeth that don't know Jesus. Two things. One, that's his job, not yours. And two, this is about advancing the kingdom of God, pressing back darkness. So that light may come through. You know, because the Bible says that we do not wage war against flesh and, b- and blood. It's not about people. It, it's not about their physical person. It's about pushing back the demonic strongholds in, in people's lives. It's about seeing the darkness at your school and saying, I will not stand for that any longer. Listen, men. We need to get a little bit of this violence within us. A little bit of hatred for sin. A little, bit of, a little bit of disgust for sin. See, so far too many of us have pet sins. Just little things that we tolerate. You know, and we just, it's kind of like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. We need to develop this hatred for sin. But there's no, there's no, you can't just, you can't just do that. When I say you have to develop it, you can't just wake up one morning and be like, I'm going to hate sin today. No. It doesn't happen that way. You have to, you you do it by by continually coming before Jesus, looking at the good. And so, and and as you, as you gaze on him, you see the crumbling of what, of, of sin. You see the darkness of sin. And all of a sudden the things that used to, you know, as Paul says, the things that used to so easily entangle us. They, they, the, the, the entanglement grows less, not because of anything you have done, but because you're gazing on the perfect God. You're looking at the one who is, uh, you know, the, the, says he lives in unapproachable light. You know, he's, he's this amazing God. And as you look at him, your love of sin begins to, to, to fall. Your desire to sin begins to fall because you're looking at, at perfection. And when you look at perfection, all of a sudden, the, the imperfection looks imperfect. 
When you see that what is offered before you is perfection, you don't want. I mean, it's like sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner and be like, no, thank you. I'd like a quarter pounder with cheese. I mean, I love me some quarter pounder with cheeses sometimes. At 2 a.m., there's, I mean, the salt on the fries, the quarter pounder, the Coke. Listen, I mean, that's great. I understand that. When you got a meal in front of you, you're not going for the junk. Except, listen, there's a time in my life. I'm going to be a little vulnerable with you. Is that okay? Okay, great. Okay. All right, there's a time in my life where I lived in an apartment that every day when I went home, I drove right by a Wendy's. And um, it, was, it, was, it was right there. And uh, I don't know why, but for some reason, Wendy's never sounds better than like 1230 at night, windows still open, looking at that, you know, that number one. And you're just like, oh, it's so good. Oh, the craving hits you. And you're like, it's so bad. For Actually, I never once thought that. I was just like, oh, it sounds so delicious. Wendy's has those soft buns, you know. And, the, and Anyway, sorry. <laughs> you know, and so, you know, like all of a sudden, and, and what would happen was I, I, I slowly began to, not slowly, I quickly began to eat Wendy's every night at, t- at between 1030 and, and midnight. Whenever I was going home, it was like, I was like, oh, I'll go to Wendy's, go to Wendy's. Sometimes when I take the back way home, I'd go home, I'd get home, I'd sit down and be like, Oh, I want some Wendy's. And, you know, I'd go just to get the Wendy's, you know. And that's what you do. Because what happens is what you eat, you begin to develop a taste for. There was nothing in my... I could have really good food that was sitting there at my house, but I wanted a Coke and fries. I mean, like the worst thing you can eat. You know, salt makes you thirsty. So you drink the Coke, which is horrible for you. And so then you eat the fries. I mean, it's 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 a downward cycle, but I couldn't stop I wanted it. It was so good. I craved it. Because what I spent time doing, what I spent time eating, that's what I began to crave. Well, same thing is true with sin. The more you do it, as you spend time doing, first time you might not be that big of a deal, you know? And and so you're looking at it and you're like, oh, that's fine. I can do this for now. You know, and then, then a little bit later it's like, oh, that sounds good. That sounds good. Before you know it, or maybe you do know it. I'm not saying it's like overnight, but gradually as you continually set yourself before sin, sin is what looks tempting to you. Then, you know, you're sitting at the banquet table and you got the, the Wendy's burger right there and you say, oh no, this, I'm fine. I'm fine with this meal that will not nourish anything in my body. I'm fine with this meal that will kill me if I eat it straight for 30 days. You know, like, I'm really okay with this. Give me that. That's what I want. That's the same thing with sin. And so then when you, when you take that out, you know, and you start, to, you start to focus on the good, it's hard. You still, crave, you still crave that which you had developed a taste for. But as you continually look at God, as you continually set yourself before him, you begin to develop a craving for him. I'm a, you know, like probably uh, my whole life, my whole life, I've been a big Coke drinker. Um, Coca-Cola is my beverage. Um, I mean, I'm telling you what it is like. It was the nectar of heaven. And, uh, and if, if you're a Pepsi drinker, uh, I, I wouldn't even talk to you. I was like, oh, you obviously you have bad taste. And so we're not talking, you know, I mean, I was coked through and through. I'd put that on all my, you know, like anytime someone would, you know, you have to like write out an, uh, a bio about yourself. I'm like, I love God, the Oklahoma Sooners and Coca-Cola. You know, it's like, that's just what I was. You know, I love Coke. I, I was drinking, I'm sound like, anyway, I was drinking like maybe six 
Cokes a day. I mean, college football day, I put down a 12-pack of Coke in a game. You know, I'm just chugging it, you know. It's, and it's not, it, Coke's fine, you know. Like, I like Coke. And, and so, it, I mean, Coke is my beverage. I mean, you can ask people. That's like, people would buy Pepsi. And listen, here's the thing. I would go to a restaurant, and if they had Pepsi products, I'd leave and go somewhere else. Because I'm not drinking that junk, you know. And so, um, I'm currently engaged right now. And so, uh, I know, right? I know. Uh, so I decided, um, <clears throat> pretty exciting time is in my future. Uh, I need to be skinny soon. I'm taking pictures and stuff. And so I need to be sin- skinny. And so I was like, uh, so what I'm going to do is, uh, I'm going to, I'm going to, you know what I'm going to do? Coke is bad for you. I wonder what would happen if I just stopped drinking Coke for a little bit. And so I know, Ooh. so then I went out and, uh, we went on our, our furnace tour. This was last fall. We went on a furnace tour, and I was like, I'm, there is no less healthy time in my life than on tour. I mean, you're on a bus with 50 college students eating at fast food restaurants every meal, eating at midnight. I mean, um, it, listen, it's not a good, healthy time. So I was like, okay, the best thing I can do is, is to just maybe I'll cut out Coke for, for this time. I went the whole eight days without drinking Coke. This was probably the first time since I was... 10 since I hadn't had coke for that long. I mean, I was a coke drinker. That's what I, I, water, not an ounce. I mean, I live in Colorado. I don't know if you know this or not. People in Colorado are water people. And I mean, they tell you drink water. If you don't drink water, you're going to get dehydrated and faint, blah, 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 blah. I didn't drink water. I drank coke. There's water and coke. I'll get what I need, you know? Oh, that's fine. Who needs water? I drank Coke. I fill up my Nalgene with Coke. You know, I'd climb Pike's Peak. Coke. You know, whatever. I was fine. So I went this whole eight days without drinking Coke. And, uh, and then I was like, hey, I went eight days. I wonder if I could go some more. So I kept going and I kept going. And before I knew it, I almost, I didn't, it wasn't hard for me when I'd go to the restaurant not to get Coke. I, I didn't want Coke, not because I didn't want the sweet taste of it. But because I was like, dude, I've done so good thus far, I, I can keep going. I can keep doing this. And so I was drinking, not only, what I did is not only would I not drink Coke, you're like, so what, do you drink like Mountain Dew? No, I, I, I replaced it with uh, the thing that I hated the most, water. I hated water. So I was drinking tons of water and uh, going to the bathroom all the time. And so uh, this weird thing happened. I, I was, we were at Thanksgiving. It had been like, it had been almost two months since I drank a Coke. And uh, my fiance's mom had gotten, she knew I drank Coke. So she got, uh, you know, a 12 pack of Coke for, for, uh, as we went to, to visit. And so I felt bad, you know, she bought it for me. And so I was like, I got to drink it, you know? So there, uh, you know, I, I crack it open and I'm like, Whew. I mean, this is like, you know, you're not supposed to do this, right? Like once you quit, you can't, you can't taste it. And so, uh, so I, I, I was like, I got to do this. I got to drink it. And so I started drinking it and this weird thing happened. It was disgusting. <laughs> I was like, oh. I, I mean, I tried to drink the whole glass. I really tried. And I couldn't do it. It was so carbonated and sweet. And like, I, I just didn't like it. And I, it was so weird. I mean, I was drinking. I, I wanted the bottled water. And it was just this strange thing. I used to make fun of all these people that drank water. And um, I am ashamed to say that I've become a water snob. I can tell you what bottled water I like. 
That's weird. I shouldn't be like that. But you begin to, it's true. Once I cut that out, I began to crave this. I began to crave water. It was the weirdest thing in the world to me. I can't even tell you. You don't even know. I hated water. I was craving water. I almost hated myself for it. When you begin to neglect those other things, you begin to, to crave God when you, when you focus on him, this great and incredible God that we serve. He's a powerful God. We can violently advance his kingdom. We can get this inside of us, you know, forcefully advancing the kingdom of God. This, this desire to see God move in your day is possible. Do you open up, or I'm just, you know, but the thing is, I read this earlier, but uh, does greater love has no one than this, that he laid down his life for a friend. That was a cool verse, right? But when you start to think about who's saying it, Jesus. I mean, I don't know if this was SWAT team Jesus, Kung Fu Jesus, you know, 300. I don't know, but, but this man that is unstoppable, no one can kill him. No one has the ability to kill Jesus. It's what he said to Pilate. You would have no power over, no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. No one can stop him. He is unstoppable. And yet he looks at them and he says, no greater love is there than this, that a man lay down his life for a friend. What he's doing here, and the disciples probably didn't even know it. This is a prophetic statement by Jesus. And he's, he's looking at them and he's saying, you don't know this yet, but I'm facing the cross before me. There is no greater love than a man give up his life for his friend. I'm about to go do it for everybody. But you know, it wasn't just a prophetic statement. Look at Philippians. Philippians 2, verse 5. It says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. He made himself nothing. He gave up. He, he, he considered equality with God, or he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9, should be up here. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sakes he became poor, so that through his poverty we might become rich. The idea here is Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He had already given up his life. The very nature of the incarnation, you know that word? It's kind of a whatever. Okay. God becoming man. The very nature of God becoming man, he had already given up his life. So this is a prophetic statement of what he's about to do and also a statement to his disciples of what he had already done. He said, I've already given up everything. I've given up my seat next to God to come make myself a servant. I'm a king. I don't know if you know what that means. I'm the king of kings. And I've given it up to come to serve you. No greater love is there than that. And I wonder if as the disciples, you know, continued on with their life and things were going good and everything was happy. And then all of a sudden Jesus is carted off and crucified. And they see him dying for them. Then they see him rise and ascend into heaven. I wonder if in the early church days, they didn't look at each other at one moment and say, do you remember that time when Jesus, 
the unkillable man, the unstoppable force, said that there's no greater love than to give up your life for somebody. And then he did it for us. Do you remember that? That's crazy. That happened. And, he, and I wonder if, if the statement, no greater love is there than this, almost began to become the mantra by which they lived their life. As they would look at each other, they're, they're planning churches and they're going out to see and spreading the gospel. And, and time after time, things get difficult. I mean, you look at, you, you look at the way that they, were, they all died. I mean, this was not an easy task. And I wonder if when things got hard, they didn't, they didn't get through it by saying, no greater love is there than this, than a man lay down his life for his friend. Jesus, I am laying down my life right now for you and flip it on him. Saying, you already gave your life for me. Now I'm giving my life to you. I mean, I don't know that. We don't have that in scripture. I'm just saying, I wonder if it didn't happen. I think it's possible. Galatians, Galatians 2.20 says this. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up. For me. I love that verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I do have, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. You want to know how to be a violent Christian, if you will? How to be a man that is forcefully advancing the kingdom of God? Give everything. Give everything you have. Paul says here, I've been crucified with Christ. I don't, even, I don't even live anymore. It's Christ who lives in me. Listen, friends, there's an amazing thing that is available to you. It's called wholehearted devotion to Jesus. You can be wholehearted right now. Right now, you can say, I want to live this moment for God. And guess what? You will. At dinner... You can say, I want to be wholehearted for God right now. And you can. Say, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but he lives in me. And the amazing thing is that verse goes on, you know, it says, and the life I live, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Paul's saying, I'm not doing anything he didn't already do. I am giving my life to Jesus because he already gave his life for me. That's what we do. That's what it means to be a Christian. So you've surrendered your life to him. I think, it, I think we need to live wholehearted lives, but we come up with so many excuses for why we can't. We, we, we have so many ideas of why I can't be wholehearted. We like to think of, of our lives and seasons, and it's kind of like, oh, listen, Dan, I, I love the idea of wanting to be wholehearted, but I just can't right now. And what we do is we... we, we we abandon wholeheartedness instead of living in wholehearted devotion. Because we give, we give up on being wholehearted because we just don't think we can do it right now. Listen, maybe next year when I graduated high school, I'm really busy right now. I got a girlfriend. I got football. You know, I got, I got school going on like crazy. My parents, I can't, once I'm out of their house, next, next season of my life, I'll be able to go hard after God. Next, next time. 
Listen, I'd love to be wholehearted, but I just can't. I don't have my driver's license, and so I can't drive to the prayer meetings. I can't drive myself to church, and I don't have people that can. And so once I'm 16 and can get my driver's license, then I can be wholehearted. Once I go to college, I can surround myself with people, and then I can be wholehearted. Once I get married, once I have kids, once I, once I, once I, once I, we come up with so many excuses for why we can't do it right now. But you can. Because being wholehearted means making the decisions in the small moments of life. It means when you're on a bus driving back to Detroit and the girl next to you is the most annoying person you have ever met in your life, you can choose in that moment to be godly. You can choose in that moment to not respond out of anger or annoyance, but to respond in a Christ-like way. And guess what? That may look sweet and nice. That's violent. You are rebelling against your own nature. That is a violent act. In every moment of life, you can be wholehearted. You can do that. And the crazy thing about it is, I don't even think it's the big moments. We think of the big moments. We think of when I'm, when I'm a leader at youth group or when I'm leading a prayer meeting or when, I, when maybe I'd like someday to preach and then I'll be, you know, that's when everything comes to and I'm wholehearted. I don't think it's the big moments. I think it's the small moments that matter. I think it's these small choices along the way, step by step, every day making decisions to be wholehearted. And you know what you're doing in that decision? When your mom yells at you and you really want to yell at her back, but you say, no, Jesus, I'm not going to because that's not how you would respond. You know what you're doing? You're giving up your life for him right there. And there's no greater love than that. You're saying, not my will be done, but yours. And you're willingly, for I've been crucified with Christ. You're saying, I die to myself in this moment. I die to myself. Your will be done. That's the greatest act of love that you could ever give. Jesus, I believe, is happier in that moment when you choose righteousness and godliness in the small moments of life than he, than he is when you think you're making him happy. It's when you do it in the small moments that you're giving up your life. You get no credit for it. One day when you're leading worship in front of people or when you're discipling someone, you get some credit for that on human standards. And that's great. I'm not saying don't do that. But it's in these moments over here when you get no credit, you don't even give yourself credit. Oh, Jesus loves those moments. That is violent Christianity. Saying, I die to myself right now. I rebel against my nature. Listen, men. When you get this mentality, it will change the way you live. All of a sudden, you do time different. If it's not meaningful, then you don't want to do it. You think, I can be giving my life for Jesus right now. Why do I spend so much time on Facebook? Why am I watching this movie? Why am I looking at this on the internet? Why am I hanging out with these people? And I'm not saying that, that I'm not trying to point out those things. What I'm saying is it'll rearrange the way you do time. All of a sudden, sin won't be quite as fun. You know? Because you're like, not only am I sinning, but even beyond that, I could be glorifying God with my life right now. 
and instead I'm wasting it by watching I Love the 90s? Another episode of Rob and Big? You know, or whatever it is. I mean, I'm not, I'm not slamming those things. I'm just saying it'll rearrange your time. It'll rearrange your friends. You'll look at your friends different. I'm not saying that your friends that aren't following Jesus. I'm not saying that you leave those friends. No, you'll look at them different though. And all of a sudden you'll see them as he sees them. And he sees them as someone he's willing to give his life for, which by the way is the greatest act of love you could ever do. So all of a sudden you look at them different. And rather than trying to make them think you're cool, you don't care about what they think. You care about what God thinks. And so their opinion matters less. And you treat them different. You treat them as Christ would. I'm not saying this happens overnight. I'm not trying to give you a cute little sermon that you can go leave and, and not change. What I'm saying is every moment of every, you know the practical of this sermon right here. Be godly in every moment. You can do it. You can do it. You might not think you can, but guess what? If you aim for that, you're going to fail. You will fail. But I guarantee you, if you're aiming for that, then 80% of being godly in every moment is a whole lot better than what you're doing right now. If you aim for the best, then you're going to do a lot better than what we do on our own. It's the grace of God that will help you in this. I'm not trying to say it's your own works. That's not all I'm saying. What I'm saying is that you can rebel against your own nature and live for him. And in every small moment of life, give him glory. Give him honor. It rearranges your money. Rearranges the, the way you spend money. It rearranges the, the way you think of your own calling and destiny. Guess what? You've been crucified with Christ. You don't have a destiny. God has a destiny for you. It's not about your calling. It's about his calling for you. I'm not saying that to like depress you. You're saying you don't have a calling. What I'm saying is God has a calling for you. It's not about you. It's about him. And when you see that, it just rearranges the way you live. Where, uh, Bernard of Clairvaux said, where everything is given, nothing is lacking. Where everything is given, nothing is lacking. When we give ourselves in the little moments of every day, we lack nothing. I want to encourage you guys. Jesus is great and powerful. And he is on the move. He is stirring in young people. He is stirring in the church of today. He is stirring in Christians all over the world. You can be a part of that movement. You can be a part of what God's doing. And it starts with the little decisions of every day. It starts with how you treat other people. It starts with the attitudes that you have. It starts with how you react to your leaders, to your teachers, to your parents, to your friends. It starts with how you do your time. These little things you can begin to say, I want to be godly in this moment. And you can do it. I promise you, you can. Start with the small moments. And the big changes that you're looking for will change. The big things that you want of, I want to stop, uh, you know, I want, I want to stop sinning in this area. And I want to stop sinning in that area. Or, or God, why don't you change this about me? Those things will change when you stop in the small things. When you start worshiping God in the small things, those big things will fade. But it starts in the small things. You can do it. I promise you, I believe in you. You can be godly in every moment if you just consciously, it's a conscious decision. Every conscious moment, you can do it. I'm not saying you live a boring life. No way. This is the exciting life. You can do it. I I encourage you just... Just try to think this way for the rest of this weekend. See how you do. I'm not saying you'll be perfect. I know you won't. Trust me. 
You'll fail. I know that. But you'll do a whole lot better than you would otherwise. Let's be people that look at God, know how great he is. Let's be men who are willing to rebel against our own nature. We pray for you, Jesus. I thank you for my brothers. God, I thank you for what you're doing in them. God, I pray that you will stir in a powerful, powerful way. May we be the kind of men that make a difference on this earth. God, we say it's not by our might, not by our power, but by your spirit. God, we offer you our lives. We submit to you. And in submitting to you, God, I thank you that you have a destiny and a calling on every man in this room. Far greater than than we could ever achieve on our own. We give our lives to you. King of kings, Lord of lords, there is none like you. You've just heard one of the speakers from Desperation, a ministry of New Life Church in Colorado Springs. For more information on becoming a Desperation intern, attending one of our conferences, or joining the Desperation National Network for local churches, visit us at desperationonline.com.